When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth, cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala. And folks, I know too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's just kind of how it goes. With me, as always, is the skeptic. She's coming in, often not even knowing what we're talking about from episode to episode. (laughs) It's Kristen Stuttered. Hi, Kristen. Hello, Joe. (laughs) So, Kristen, it's a new month. Uh-huh. We have made it to October. As you know, each month has its own bad pun theme name. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And I've given you a little bit of a hint as to what we're going to be talking about today. I had a feeling it was going to be LL Cool J, kind of like the bridge episode into our new month. I then was trying to think, I, I actually thought about it for a few seconds today. Oh, really? So okay. more, more than I tried to think about yeah. our show. I'm um, impressed. And I was like, what could this be? Could it be like Snubtober? So if you think about who, because we've kind of reviewed every inductee for the year 2021 up until now, save for just a few that are remaining. I didn't think about that at all. I just, (laughs) well, maybe you should have. And the way that we are going to kind of cover what I would call the the final two inductees that we haven't really talked about at length. Kristen, welcome to Todd Tober. No! (laughs) But I do like this one, Todd. That's a good, you know what? I truly appreciate. Are we ending on a bang? I, I think Todd Tober is a funny, I, I think it's funny. I think it's good. I, I think it's clever and I'm glad it's wow. not going to be all about Todd Rundgren because this first episode is not going to be about him. No, it's going to be so about uh, James Todd Smith. It's beginning with a bang in my yeah. opinion. I not well, that great. I don't want to talk about Todd Rundgren for one episode because I do, but I don't want to talk about him for We'll, we'll see more. how it we'll see how it goes, but we'll let's see who uh, else is named Todd in the mix that I didn't realize. Bring our guest in, who's been waiting patiently. Uh, we're very excited to have him because he has been on the nominating committee for the Rock Hall. Based on my research, around 15 years, he's also a you know just a music industry veteran, uh, journalist, and he was the director of publicity for Def Jam Records from '84 
to 90. Let's bring him in, Bill Adler. Hey, Bill. Hey. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really uh, excited to talk to you. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I guess we'll just start off with insider Rock Hall talk, but we'll go, you know, you weren't there in the beginning. I'm curious, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, before you were involved and this thing was kind of starting, did you have any opinions on this institution and like what they were doing? I don't know that I had strong opinions. I mean, I was I was happy it was happening. I'm trying. You know, you'll know better than I will in terms of the timeline. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, what I recall is that there were uh, Rock Hall induction ceremonies prior to the building of the Rock Hall itself. So you tell me, when was the first Rock Hall induction uh, ceremony? Mid eighties. 86. It was 86. Very good. Christine. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, they had, and they had many induction ceremonies before the building itself was constructed. The museum in 1995 was when they opened the doors. I, you know, kind of followed along 1986. I'm working at Def Jam Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I, I, I probably didn't think at the time, you know, Oh, Run DMC and and LL Cool J and some of our, you know, my other books I was working with are going to end up in this rock and roll hall of fame, you know, 25 years from now. But I'm somebody who grew up with rock and roll, and and you know I was I was pleased to, to see this thing happening. It, it wasn't a life changer for me, but you know I was I was happy to to see it happen. Yeah, and then around the late '90s is when you got involved with the nominating committee. Were you a voter before you were in the committee? No, I don't think I was. You know, if somebody reached. You know, I've, I've often tried to figure it. Out. I I don't. I, it's kind of weird that I can't have nailed it down after all this time about how actually I was involved. Involved. I think it might have had to do with Arthur Levy. Do you do you, do you all know yes. Arthur? We mm-hmm. talked. We talked okay. to Arthur. We actually uh, we we did a series of episodes where we called voters to try and influence their vote if we could. And Arthur was one of the one of the guys that we talked to. Well, you know, I, I knew Arthur when when uh, Def Jam was signed up by Columbia in '85. Arthur was working at Columbia in the PR department, and and he wrote. Uh, bios and press releases. And also he maintained, you know, a kind of an archive there, a photo archive and a, and a press archive. And the two of us hit it off at that time. And then all those years later, you know, when I finally came aboard uh, on the nominating committee, Arthur, you know, welcomed me. Truthfully, I don't know kind of how and why he might have been reticent to tell me that he was the guy. And I may be wrong, but I have a feeling that uh, he's the guy who pulled me in. And, and what I'm guessing is this, you know, by the time I came in, the very first rappers were going to become eligible. You know that it take, it's 25 years from the time that uh, an artist records his first record, right. that he mm-hmm. becomes eligible for the rock hall. So if first rap records come out in 79 and 80, so then the, the, the first rappers would be eligible circa 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the folks on the nominating committee to that point weren't so familiar themselves with, you know, the whole rap generation and with hip hop in general. And they understood that, you know, they lacked that kind of knowledge and they reached out to some of uh, the rest of us who did know a little something about it. Right. So they got you involved and you could kind of ingratiate yourself with the group. And then by the time that these artists that they might need someone who's a bit of an authority, you know, or knows the context, they can, you can make the case. Yes. Did you nominate any of your artists kind of when they became eligible? Have you been on the Oh sure. the LL eligibility train <laughs> since the beginning or yeah, I'm curious about that. Yeah, you know, I I mean, so I was able to nominate Run DMC in 20 in 2008. 
mm-hmm. which is when they first became available. And I undoubtedly nominated LL in 2009 when he became available. But, you know, uh, I do believe I was, you know, on board prior to that. So, you know, wh- what does it mean? Did I nominate Curtis Blow and the Sugar Hill Gang and, you know, some of the, you know, uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five? I probably nominated them as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So w- would you say that you always brought up hip hop artists or did you take a an approach of you have the potential to nominate whoever you want? Well, everybody, you know, all of the, the members of the nominating committee get three votes. And I don't think, you know, it's, it was such a funny thing. I don't know if I ever nominated more than one rapper in a given year. I, maybe, you know, uh, LL and, and the Beastie Boys in the same year, you know, but I, mm-hmm. I think we understood right away that given how relatively alien rappers were in the Rock Hall, certainly in the early years, mm-hmm. uh, the thinking went that let there be one rap nominee uh, standing alone, mm-hmm. and that would increase his or her chances of getting into the Hall of Fame. So, you know, I, I, again, you know, I, I grew up in the mid-60s, and I, there's all kinds of so-called rock and roll that I love. And so if uh, I, I vote, you know, for my one rapper and I have two more votes, you know, it was no problem for me to vote outside of the rap category mm-hmm. also. Yeah. Do any, uh, any names come to mind? Any memories of advocating for anyone? Well, sure. I mean, over the years, you know, I nominated for Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, you know, oh, okay. uh, over and over again. You know, having grown up in Detroit, you know, I think they're overlooked. That's the Rolling Stones of Detroit. It's not a small thing. And, you know, I, I still don't think that they've got in. You know, I've, I've nominated Captain Beefheart. You know, he hasn't got in. Correct, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably I probably nominated and voted for the MC5 and, and on and on. It's not just, you know, Detroit stuff. Yeah, the the MC5, the, the perennial snubs, the not, perennial unlike, snub. not yeah. unlike LL. Yeah, they mm-hmm. have made the ballot many times, but have have struggled to get in via the voters. Well, let me let me suggest something that's, you know, kind of a you know, once again, it's it's inside politics vis-a-vis the nominating committee is that actually they, I was going to say there are two levels, but there are three. There's the nominating committee. There's the general voting membership. And then there's the public. And, mm-hmm. you know, I will say that the nominating committee relatively are hipsters. There were 30 of us or so, right? Mm-hmm. right. The, the general voting membership, I, I think, numbers about 700 people. And then there's the public, of course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our first kind of consideration, our uh, strategic consideration early on was, you know, we're going to nominate, for example, LL Cool J, even though he might seem uh, a harder fit to the larger voting membership than somebody like, you know, to be obvious, the Beastie Boys. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even even so, I mean, it it opens up this kind of larger question. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons I really enjoyed being on the the nominating committee, because every year the discussion really came down to this. What is rock and roll and who is rock and roll? And the definition changed all the damn time. And mm-hmm. it's by, and by the way, it's a very, very expansive definition anyway. You know, I don't know, to be, to be absurd about it, you know, the idea that you've got, you know, Bill Haley and, and you know, Run DMC in the same institution forming under the same umbrella. I kind of love it. You know, I'm not mad at how expansive it is. But year by year, what we did is kind of debate among ourselves. 
what is rock and roll? And then we kind of put it to the test. We came up with our nominees and we put it out to the voting membership and, and they weighed in. And what I was going to say was, you know, so they're like the second level in this. And the third level is what happens on the ground in Cleveland. And, you know, over the years, it was we heard a kind of constant complaint from whoever was the director of the Hall of Fame in Cleveland, you know, who would also come and vote. And mm-hmm. he'd say, you know, every damn day somebody visiting gets up in my face and says, why isn't Kiss a member of the Hall of Fame? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, in, yeah, in the our populist choice. Yeah. And and so we were, you know, uh, in, in our little pod, uh, I think we were probably contemptuous of it. But, you know, one time, you know, I, I listened at length, you know, uh, to whoever it was who was the director at that time. And I thought to myself, fuck me, you know, and, and fuck my, uh, you know, uh, refined taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, rock and roll is a popular art form. Kiss are popular favorites. Mm-hmm. There's no reason they shouldn't be in if, if you know, people at ground level are complaining about it. Well, it's the fame part of it, I think, that is what goes to bat for bands like Kiss. It is the Hall of Fame. They're a very famous band. And whether or not they're critically beloved or like... If you evaluate the art on its <laughs> yeah. merits in that regard... <laughs> whatever but yeah yeah you know, you, that, that's a good point it's fame and like can you say kiss was not famous uh, i think you'd have a hard time arguing that yeah and i think that that's probably working against mitch Ryder. i do not know this person you would um, know you would know devil in a blue dress oh okay that's on rules category <laughs> i mean the, I, I could, that it would seems be like a, a very little Steven. single yeah. that would be an amazing no okay. please may i just make a request please do yourself a favor uh, and when we're done look up mitch Ryder. uh you know and, and maybe you know buy a copy i mean I, this is so antique of me buy a cd of his greatest hits <laughs> I'll, or go I'll look on, him up on spotify <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise you a bunch of national hits. And in Detroit, they ruled between, you know, whatever it would have been, 64 and, and 68. But yeah, so the nominating committee is is such an interesting, you know, often shadowy, maybe needlessly shadowy, but, you know, the, the, everything is kept in secrecy to some extent. But we've talked to many former committee members who've been on the show who have been very yeah. nice to, uh, you know, disclose, I guess, is the is the word. <laughs> yeah, but I'm curious if there's anything that sticks out to you from those days, you know, they're, they're long days, from what I understand. So I'm, I'm just curious if what, uh, you know, whether it's someone bringing up someone that you, an artist that you think is absurd, or the fact that, you know, a certain artist couldn't get any traction or, or this or that really, I mean, it's a pretty general question, but I'm curious about your memories of the, your nominating committee days. You know, I don't know that there was a lot of, you know, uh, kind of head to head contention, but there was kind of tremendous breadth of choices. And it got to the point, and I'm trying to think how long I'd been a member before this happened, but there were a number of subcommittees that were created, you mm-hmm. know, deliberately to turn our attention to kind of subgenres that had been overlooked. You know, so eventually I became a member of the hip hop subcommittee and there was a heavy metal subcommittee. Oh. And there was a prog rock subcommittee. And uh, fuck me, I can't, I, you know, I can't remember who all else, you know, what, what were the other subcommittees, but that was a thing. And I'm not a fan of prog rock, for example. So to hear, you know, people banging away uh, to, to get yes 
into the Hall of Fame was mm-hmm. it was relatively try it was trying to me, <laughs> but you know again again it's fine you know as I said the whole thing was about debate and mostly you know I was not bored you know I'd sit there and listen to what everybody had to say and then you know get to make my vote and blah 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 and go home. Well, you know we're going to talk at length about. LL Cool J, who has been on the ballot six times, is getting right. in through a subcategory, a side category, just because the voting body right. is not seemingly ever going to be able to make the the right decision with him. And, you know, there, there's a lot that has been said about the lack of order chronologically, specifically, in terms of Mm. these inductees. I mean, you take a look at this year and you see Jay-Z and LL Cool J being inducted in the same year and that there is that problem on display. I am curious what you think about artists, specifically within the hip-hop genre, that have not been inducted yet that you think should have been by now. Well, gee, I don't know. I mean... I don't know why Curtis Blow was not in there. You know, I think of the early folks, but Kurt, Kurt in particular, who, you know, to my way of thinking, was the Elvis of rap. Mm-hmm. And yet, mm-hmm. uh, in, in my calmer moments, I understand, you know, he, he came in very early. His first single was Christmas Rappin' in 1979. That's a long time ago. I'm the guy named Curtis Blow, and Christmas is one thing I know. So every year, just about this time, I celebrate it with a rhyme. Mostly, he did not cross over. He did, he did to a certain extent, but mostly, you know, he's going to, you know, sell on the R&B charts and the black singles charts. He is relatively obscure. It's a problem. You know, I don't, I don't know how to get over that hump. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I mean, it, it. You know, all it did was steal me to fight that fight once a year in the committee meeting room, and then you know, see what happened. I mean, you listen. You know, the the other part of this, by the way, for what it's worth, and and I may, I may be going, you know, kind of beyond your bounds here a little bit. As I said, I endorse the idea of a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I endorse, I endorse the reality of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But that's not the be-all and the end-all. And there's been a lot of agitation, for example, for a, a hip-hop Hall of Fame. And mm-hmm. I promise you that one of those is going to you know, spring up out of the ground sooner than later, which is something I might not have said you know, five years ago, even though mm-hmm. people have been talking about this for you know, no less than 15 years. And so you know, when that happens, you know, some of the guys who I believe are pioneers will, will get their props. You know, for that matter, there's a, a country music hall of fame, which happens to be magnificent. First of all, if I love an artist's work, that's fine. That's enough for me. Do I need the world in the form of an institution like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to, you know, bestow its love on whoever it is? I don't. It was just, you know, somehow kind of sideways. I was pulled into the nominating committee and I was happy to contribute. And I, you know, seriously, and I did what I could. And to the extent that I failed sometimes, I wasn't going to bang my head against the wall. You know, it, you know, the, the forces at work are larger than me. Right. You know, thinking about that, like a hip hop hall of fame, I wonder yeah. if that would change some of the meetings. I wonder if people would be like, quit trying to put them in the rock hall. They can go be in the hip hop hall of fame. You know, we've gotten so niche in our interests. And I think the internet has led to people kind of getting more and more niche. And I wonder, oh my gosh, is like the rock hall, the thing, the the umbrella, the big tent for everyone to be in? Or is it good to just kind of be like, let's make more separation? I don't know. Am I calling for unity? What 
<laughs> I'm not sure. I, I, I just, I'm the, exploring the concept in my brain of what it would mean for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if there was a separate hip hop institution. Well, I don't know. It seems to me you could, you know, predict it. It might go two different ways. You know, number one, uh, hardcore kind of conventional rockers will say, well, we don't have to worry about Curtis because, you know, the Hip Hop Hall of Fame is going to pull him in. Mm -hmm. Or folks in the nominating committee are going to say, you know what, the Hip Hop Hall of Fame has already pulled in Curtis Blow. We we better do something to catch up or we're going to be overtaken by these folks. But I do get the sense that the existence of the Country Music Hall of Fame has been an excuse for the Rock Hall to not bother with country music because there really has not been a ton of crossover with the inductees. And I get the sense that is mm -hmm. part of it. Gee, I, I wonder about that. I, you know, I, I mean, certainly you, you've got, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis both in the, in the rock hall and, and they are, uh, you know, some large part of their DNA is country music, obviously. And, and I think there's been more of that right along. Now, having said that, is George Jones in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? He is uh, not. I don't think so. But mm -hmm. is, Roy, is Roy Orbison? I think he is. Yes. You know, and if you didn't call him rock and roll, you might call him country. So, you know, this stuff is a mishmash, always. More is better. More of these institutions is better. And as I said, I don't live or die on the basis of, you know, who's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or not. It was fun <laughs> to contribute to the thinking about it for a while. But, you know, I just, I continue to be a music lover myself. And, and you know, the, the music I love, I don't want to say it transcends categories, but, um, you know, I, I'm not, I don't worry too much about what's rock and roll and what's not. Well, and I think that that is something that you have in common with Gen Z and kind of the younger generation is I think that while music has gotten more niche and people have gone to their little corners of the internet, I don't think that the way that maybe when Joe and I were growing up, there was kind of like a divide, you know, like I like rock music or mm -hmm. I like pop music. There was like a big rock pop divide and rap as well, but less so I think hip hop R&B really infiltrated pop music while we were coming up. But the idea that people don't define themselves as one type of music fan really anymore. I, I can't. Mm -hmm. I think their music is so ubiquitous and also it's probably because people get less deep into their artists as well, though, because people aren't buying albums the way that they used to. It's like kind of a singles economy. Well, yeah, that's, you know, we, to your point, I think you can chalk that up to why those genres existed in the first place, which in my mind, there's two reasons and it's for radio and it's for record stores, which the new generation is is not uh, participating, in, participating either. in either of yeah. those things. Yeah, so then that that goes away when you don't have those things anymore. Yeah. True. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, Bill, I would like to know, since you were at Def Jam in the beginning, I would love to know, from a personal perspective, the first time you heard about LL Cool J. Well, I was already w working at... Def Jam and at Rush, you know, I started working there, I think, in June of 1984. And Rick Rubin, when he was on his own, put out his first uh, rap record. It was by Tila Rock and, and uh, Jazzy J, and it was called It's Yours. It's yours. Do you like it? Yeah. Do you want it? Yeah. Well, if you had it, would you flaunt it? And I think he cut it sometime in, in 83, and it, it hit in 84, at least here in the city. And he and Russell pretty quickly, by the spring of 84, 
they had decided that basically that Russell would join Def Jam and, they'd, and it would really be a thing. It just wouldn't be, you know, this kind of very interesting little uh, hobby that Rick was running out of his uh, NYU dorm room. And so the very first single, what would become the first kind of formal Def Jam single, DJ 001, was LL Cool J's I Need a Beat. And that came out in September of 84. I need a beat. As I said, you know, I was there as of, you know, whatever, June of 84. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, LL was 16 years old at the time. Uh, he was a lot uh, uh, leaner than he is now. He wasn't built up quite as much. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, he was a high school dropout. And he was very energetic. He was very boyish. And he was talented as hell. Yeah, so those are your those are your first impressions <laughs> of of him. Yeah, he he was likable, and you know he was you know competitive at the time. The offices we were on uh, 26th Street, just south of uh, we were on Broadway, just south of 26th Street, Manhattan, in two rooms, and Russell had one room to himself. And, you know, the other three or four of us occupied the other room. And the artists were in and out of the office all damn day. And, you know, the, the rappers would get bored. And being rappers, they'd start snapping on each other in rhyme. And I remember mm -hmm. Run and Jalil from Houdini going at it. And I think finally Run won, you know. And <laughs> then a little, a, little, a little later, Run and LL went at it. And it was a much tougher climb. That was really, yeah. really competitive. And the, the idea that L could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Run at the height of his powers, mm -hmm. uh, very impressive. That's a, that just sounds like such an exciting thing to witness while you're at work. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. And to get an idea of what you're doing, how would you describe your job at, uh, as head of publicity at, at Def Jam? What were you doing? Well, I mean, first of all, I chose it for myself. You know, Russell hires me. Okay, so Russell Simmons just kind of picks you up, and what does he say? What do you want to do with us? I, I, I just want to work with you? No, 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 no. Here's what happened. I mean, it's, you know, I, it, we have time. You can make this shorter if you want. <laughs> sure. But, you know, I was, I was writing for the New York Daily News uh, in, in uh, 1980. I was freelancing. And I uh, first heard of Curtis Blow. I was still in Boston writing for the Boston Herald. And he came out with Christmas rap and at Christmas time of 79, and I thought it was fairly remarkable. So I moved mm -hmm. to New York in 1980, and before the, the summer's out, uh, Curtis puts out a second single, which is called The Breaks. Breaks in a bus, breaks on a car, breaks to make you a superstar. Breaks to win and breaks to lose. It's easier, breaks to rock your shoes. And these are the breaks. Break it up, break it up, break it up. And I sold the Daily News on the idea of a feature story about this guy from New York, who had a new, you know, had a national hit with this song. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't meet Russell face to face at the time, but I started to hear about him. Okay, fast forward to 83. I'm freelancing to People Magazine, and I sold them on the idea of doing a story about just kind of generally what's going on with this rap stuff. It's already 1983, it's been growing for years. People Magazine, you need to do a story about this, this you know, emerging genre this movement. And they said, mm -hmm. go ahead. And on a whim, I called this guy, Russell Simmons, who I'd only heard about a few years earlier. And he said, he said, listen, I, I've got to promote a record tonight. Why don't you come hang out with me? And it turned out to be one of the great nights of my life. We went to a variety of different nightclubs in the city. And I think he was promoting a record on the, uh, the label that uh, Disco Fever sponsored. They had a, a label called uh, Fever Records. 
and their artist was Sweet G, and the record was called Games People Play. And uh, Russ was promoting it because, you know, he did a variety of things at that time. And so he's promoting it. And we went around to all these clubs and we end up at the end of the night at Disco Fever, which was absolutely remarkable. This after hours club in the Bronx where it was just wild and, you know, whatever. We don't have time to go into it. <laughs> but then a year later, it, so, well, I'll say, I'll say this, you know, that, that what happened was, you know, at the end of the night, I knew I wasn't going to do a general story. I was going to do, you know, a, a particular story, work from the particular, this nightclub, disco fever, this hip hop nightclub. And, you know, from that, people get an idea about generally what was going on. So mm-hmm. that's the story. And that, that was published. And, uh, you know, a year later, Ronald Reagan is running for office. Mm-hmm. Uh, re-election, and I was I was no fan of Reagan, and I had this idea. This is you'll you'll be astonished at, at how brilliant this is. My idea was that um, <laughs> I would write an I would write an anti-Reagan rap uh, for Curtis Blow <laughs> because I knew Kurt I knew that I knew that Kurt didn't write all his olden lyrics, and so I thought, well, let me let me write this, and Kurt will record it, and we will rap Ronald Reagan out of office. That was the idea. <laughs> yes, and so, what, a, what a nice if, what a nice idea. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, you know, anyway, I went to talk to Russ about it and we, we, um, you know, we hit it off and, you know, I I don't think Russell thought much of my rhymes, but he said, what else do you do? And, and so we, you know, we, we, we got to talk and then finally, you know, basically he flattered me into a job. You know, I told him, you know, I'm done. I'm trying to get this um, documentary off the ground and I'm writing for this publication and that publication and blah, blah, blah. He says, I can't believe somebody as smart as you doesn't have a job. Why don't you come work with me? Well, okay. What you mean? I'll get a paycheck every week. That was fantastic. <laughs> and so I started working for him, but he wasn't, you know, he, he's a brilliant guy, obviously, but you know, he wasn't much of a, a conventional manager. There was no uh, real structure to the, uh, the company. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I hung out, you know, there for two weeks, just trying to get my footing. And finally, I told him, I said, look, Russell, you've got, you're managing a dozen artists here. Uh, you've got this new label coming out. Uh, you do not have an in-house publicist. I'll do that for you. Mm-hmm. And he just said, okay, go ahead. Now, I hadn't done that before myself, but by that time, I'd been you know, working music journalist for 10 years. Sure. And so I'd certainly spoken to enough music publicists and I had an idea about what had to be done. And in any case, what I told myself is, I know I can do better than nothing. If nothing's being done, I can do better than nothing. <laughs> so that, low was, bar. that was the start of A it. low bar. Nailing yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So that, that's, that's how the job began. Well, what I want to do is I want to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to really get into kind of the story of LL Cool J. So we're going to take a break and we will be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice little break. We hope over your break, you reassured somebody. Yeah. You had some a moment of reassurance and it was nice. So let's talk about LL Cool J, James Todd Smith, became eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the 2010 ceremony, which would have meant he became eligible in 2009. And he right. was nominated six times this last year, being one of them. It was 2010, 2011, 2014, 2018, 2019, and 2021. We had kind of thought that 
with Jay-Z, uh, of course, uh, given that he was going to be on the ballot, we were surprised to see another hip-hop artist on the ballot this year, mm-hmm. given the way that they try to clear the lanes. Also interesting, too, to hear that confirmation. We've heard it, I feel like, in other ways, but like knowing, especially with hip-hop, that it is real, that in the nominating committee, they're like, let's There's keep it down to one, effort. clear yeah. the path for the one hip-hop artist to get inducted. If there is going to be one, it'll be this one. Right. So yeah, to see two yep. on the ballot this year was surprising. And then the way it all went down, even more shocking. <laughs> sure. But let's uh, let's go kind of back to the beginning. It's from Queens and started rapping early, like in the neighborhood. Uh, yeah. from, from what he has said, that is just something that you did in the neighborhood, you know, and he was doing it at nine or 10, you know, and then when he became right. a teenager, he was he was making demo tapes and it was very fortunate to have a supportive family. He had a grandfather who was a, saxophone player played jazz saxophone bought him a bunch of equipment like two thousand dollars worth of equipment and his wow. his mom got him a drum machine so he had a, a family that was supportive of you know what, what they probably thought was a hobby and then obviously became a, a, an incredible career yes and uh he sent he made demos he made his own demos and sent them to a bunch of labels one of them was right. def jam uh which at that yeah. point was very independent and hadn't had I would imagine at that point, very many releases. It had had one. That's oh, wow. all. Just, oh, wow. they'd, just they'd one. Had, you know, they'd, they'd put out Tila Rock's It's Yours. And, uh, you know, Rick did that well when he was still, you know, on his own. And, you know, at the time, among other things, you know, he was friends with uh, Adam Horowitz, who was in this punk rock band called the Beastie Boys. Right. Mm-hmm. And Rick... Uh, you know, I, I don't know how the hell he graduated from NYU. I don't know that he did any work there. What he did is he set up his dorm room as a kind of a little production center. And mostly he listened to records and then he had a, a DJ set up and, and that's what he did. And also he made beats. That's what he was doing. That's what he spent a lot of time doing. And meanwhile, you know, the success of Tila Rock uh, inspired lots of artists uh, and would-be artists to send demo tapes to him. And uh, I think typically, you know, he he never really took the time to dive into the box of stuff that was coming in over, you know, through the transom. Mm-hmm. And Adam Horvitz, who was, you know, uh, skipping out of high school at the time, uh, he dug through that box. And he's the one who heard this record, this demo uh, tape by this kid calling himself LL Cool J. And he's the one who, you know, told Rick about it. And Rick listened and said, yeah, there's something there. And that was the start of it. Wow. And, you know, then as, as I said, and then as I said, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, what happened was LL was the first artist on Def Jam during, you know, what you might call the, the formal Def Jam era. You know, if, if Tila Rock was kind of a preview, you know, mm-hmm. Def Jam per se got started with DJ 001 in the fall of 1984 with LL Cool J's I Need a Beat. Right. Which was a huge success. Uh, and it kind of helped define both him and the label. That's right. Absolutely. You know, sold sold over 100,000 copies. And then that leads into, you know, the success of that 12-inch leads into the album Radio, his first album in 1985. Right. Is that the first LP for Def Jam? Uh, I think it was. And actually what happened, so, you know, the, 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 between... The fall of 84 and the fall of 85, Def Jam as an independent entity put out seven singles. But I really do think, 
you know, the first couple of singles, first LL and then the Beastie Boys, were both sensational. generated a bunch of interest among the major labels mm-hmm. and you know uh, by the time we get into 85 columbia records is sniffing around and they set up a distribution deal with def jam and the very first album to come out once the partnership with columbia was a thing was ll's debut album that was the fall of 85 mm-hmm. and it was a huge success 500,000 copies in the first five months Uh, You know, obviously going platinum eventually, a pivotal hip-hop record. Absolutely. Although, you know, I'll say this. I mean, you know, not to say it wasn't remarkable, but one of the things that that not not everybody understands is just how wildly popular rap music was from the very, very beginning. Whether or not the critics went for it, whether or not, you know, uh, white folks went for it, whether or not older black folks cared about it, Mm -hmm. um, it was hugely popular you know think of think of the sugar hill gang's rapper rapper's delight which came out in you know the summer of 1979 it was an independent label it was 15 minutes long there was no singing on it yeah there was yeah. no singing there were and seven it, it people right Right. And it charted in a dozen different countries, including a number of countries where they don't speak English. (laughs) And that was, you know, a harbinger of what was to come. You know, Run DMC's first album went gold. Their second album went platinum. That's 1984 and 1985. The music was just very, very popular right away. Uh, you know, we, we had our guys going out on the road and, and, and selling out arenas starting in the fall of 1984. And also, I'll, I can back up a little bit more. I'll tell you this, you know, something that was also cru- crucial in this, certainly crucial in terms of making rap rock and roll, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. was MTV. MTV really mm-hmm. starts rolling, I think, in 80, 81, and their format, such as it was, was devoted strictly to white rock and mostly mm-hmm. English rock. And, you know, that was a thing. And then all of a sudden they started dipping their toe into the water when it came to rap music circa 83. And by 84, when Run DMC put out Rock Box in the, in the summer of 1984, I think it was. That became a sensation. And, you know, then LL comes out in 85 and he does very, very well. And the Beasties are going to make a a huge difference. Rap music was very, very popular on MTV. And by 88, they started to put together a show called Yo! MTV Raps. Mm. And then, so that, that starts out on the weekends. And it quickly became a daily show as well. And then it was so popular over the course of five years that by 1993, they finally didn't even need a show just devoted mm-hmm. to rap music anymore because the entire, uh, you know, all the programming was integrated at that point. Yeah. And, and really, that's another way of saying that rap had become rock. Yeah, mm-hmm. well. And that's, yeah, the mainstreaming of it or the integrating of it. Yeah, it went from having its own little separate show into being like, it's just part of the music video flow now. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's you know, right. 
went on to do the same with the rest of society. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, you know, the the explosion of that first album, you know, probably coincides with the achieving of mainstream success with hip hop. You know, I mean, one of the one of the things also, you know, that, that and again, this is something that Russ did that, that was very, very smart, um, is that he understood that we weren't selling a genre. You know, he's somebody who came up during the disco era. And the thing about disco is that it wasn't about artists. It was about a beat to the extent that there were any stars. It was about producers, but they didn't build any artists with the exception of somebody like Donna Summer and maybe the village people, but there were no disco stars. Mm -hmm. And Russell's idea was, you know, just because you buy a rap record one week, you buy Run DMC one week and the next week it's LL Cool J, you know, do you, you know, are you buying it on the basis of your hunger for a particular genre or because, you know, Run DMC and LL Cool J have their own unique appeal. And Mm -hmm. Of course, they had their own, you know, individual appeal, you know, we, you know, and, and we promoted the artists, you know, on the basis of all their individual appeal. And when it comes to LL, he had something that Run DMC didn't have, which is, among other things, he had dimples <laughs> and he was really right. good looking. Mm-hmm. The ladies love him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for a rapper to, you know, write and perform uh, a love song. Wow, that was brand new. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that made uh, Al particularly appealing. It really helped him. Yeah, especially when you think about it happening in the MTV era when the visuals are so important, both with, you know, Run DMC right. obviously have a look, and then LL Cool J has a look and is extremely handsome and looks great with his shirt off and is, you know, a, an appealing right. figure visually. Yes. Exactly right. Yeah. So, I mean, and also the singles that LL is putting out, you know, he's one of the great singles artists uh, of of hip hop. You know, you have from that first album, Rock the Bells. I can't live without my radio. And then 1987, you get bigger and deafer, and that's where you get I Need Love. He deserves to be this way till I'm old, but the other half needs affection and joy, and the warmth that is created by a girl and a boy. I need love. And the I Need Love is so important because, you know, not only is it this love song, but also it goes to number one on the R&B charts, which for a hip hop artist to do, Mm -hmm. you know, that might, if that is not the first time that that happened, it's one of the first times for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. So he's got tremendous crossover appeal, which, you know, helped only helps to grow the the hip hop audience. I mean, you know, again, it's a question about what is hip hop? He was expanding the definition of hip hop and, and, you know, in, in effect, you know, he's, he was leaning towards R&B at least a little bit, and that's going to make the genre more appealing to, to women. Yeah, the lover man persona is is such a – he pioneered it in a, in a sense, and that really has continued, and we still see it to this day. It's such an important part of the genre. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, and then, you know, we get 1989, we get Walking with the Panther, and so he's on a roll. Going back to Cali. think so he's getting some criticism from the hip-hop community that the sound maybe is getting too commercial you know these love ballads aren't it's not the hard shit that you know maybe the diehard 
hip hop fans come to expect? Well, also, I mean, for that matter, you know, he uh, there was a period, you know, at the time Walking with the Panther came out. That was a relative low point for him. And among other things, he was criticized because it wasn't political enough. You know, this is 10 minutes after the, the ascendance of Public Enemy. And mm. uh, there was a you know tremendous increase in consciousness among rappers, at least some rappers. And LL didn't reflect that. So he, he took a hit. And then he came back with Mama Said Knock You Out. And, and that wasn't uh, conscious but at least it was hard again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Marley Marl produced it for him, I think. And, and mm-hmm. that was some hard funk and it, it put him back in the game. Right. Don't call it a comeback. Don't call it a comeback. Don't call it a comeback. And that feels like the beginning of a a second phase for LL because you hear, you know, there is quite a difference in the sound of Mama Said Knock You Out or Around the Way Girl versus the stuff that was on radio, even if it's just the the production. I mean, that's really a reflection of how far I think hip hop production had come, you know, in that's like six years. That's pretty incredible. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, LL gets his first Grammy for A Mama Said Knock You Out. So there's, you know, the uh, acceptance by the industry as well. And what what year is Mama Said Knock You Out? 90? 90. 90. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then when do we kind of, I feel like, and then the early 90s is just like right after that is when we really get the like onset of gangster rap as like a mainstream, it breaks through in a major way with like Dre and Snoop. And that's what, 92, I feel like, something and, like that. And, you know, LL's next album kind of adopts that sound. I, I don't think it's one of the albums that people really look to as like the classic LL. I think probably because it was not really his thing, but 14 Shots to the Dome from 93 absolutely is in the kind of West Coast gangster rap vein. And at that point, Bill, you're not uh, you're not at Def Jam anymore, but are you still keeping up with LL Cool J? Not as obsessively as when I was working with him. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So when you were there, you know, like you said, artists would come to the label, to your offices, to literally your workplace from time to time. I'm curious about your memories of this kid as he's coming up. He was just always very self-possessed. You know, I don't want to, you know, my, my nickel's worth of psychoanalysis here. Run was the younger brother of two older brothers, and he forms a group. And he and DMC and Jay were essentially, you know, two more brothers. You know, Run was going to be in a group. LL was an only child, and mm-hmm. he became a solo artist. And he was very comfortable with that and you know he only was was more comfortable as time went on you know even after all this this time you know he's gonna burnish his cred and do the work that he wants to do and and not ask anybody else's permission basically very independent Mm -hmm. and he kind of is like setting the mold of a solo rap which comes to be like what we think of as rappers like we think of rap as a solo art form we think of it with like features and guests and maybe you have a crew but like there are not very many 
you know, like Run DMC didn't like set the mold for like, and now we have all these rap trios that are just in yeah. the, in the game. Mm-hmm. Now we don't. We really. I mean, I'm like not anymore. We, not really. What do we have? Outcast, and they're both solo now. And like, what are some other like even Migos. kind of Migos? I guess yeah, yeah. But, but like no, mostly, you're the... looking at solo artists. We think of it as like a solo single person's bravado thing and he was real and we also i mean it comes in and out but yeah the idea that like rap would be appealing to women or that there would be something in there for them and kind of like merging it with the r&b he's the blueprint before there was blueprint (laughs) right i agree so you know the singles and the albums keep coming uh i think mr smith from 1995 is is an important one because that's got you know hey lover with boys to men in my arms and ease your fears i can't believe it i ain't had a crush in years hey love which was a a huge hit that won uh, another grammy and then also it's got doing it on it it's got lounging on it which are two uh, i think of his biggest and best songs and also very much of the time that we were in which was that sampling had become Mm -hmm. really like a critical part of rap and hip-hop music so there wasn't singing necessarily on the track but it was like a sample of someone else singing it wasn't there wasn't like he's not singing but yeah yeah, he's not singing but there's still but the hook is yeah exactly Mm -hmm. the hook is often sung by someone in the 70s um (laughs) or someone new you know singing a pastiche or, or something like that right and so to have been able to you know we talk a lot about like longevity and the idea that his career can his career has like a million phases but he has the pioneering phase of he needs a beat and that's all he's got is him in a beat and then we move into like sampling don't call it a comeback phase yeah and then you know mm-hmm. he becomes ubiquitous entertainment eventually but like he was able to maintain relevance, which I think maybe I don't give him enough credit for. I just, I want to give that to him right now. <laughs> Props from me. LL. Wow, high praise. I, I know, I'm sure you from, can. From, I'm an, sure. from an industry titan. Yes. Well, let's, let's not forget also that, you know, he was, he did what a lot of rappers did, but he did it earlier than most, which is to say that he kind of expanded beyond the music business very early on. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was in his first movie, I think, in, in, in 1985. He, he puts out Going Back to Cali, I think, in 88, which is basically Going Back to Cali, I don't think so. So in a way, it's anti-Hollywood. Pretty shortly, mm-hmm. you know, he's in Hollywood and he's in a television series. And he ends up, you know, doing, I mean, he's, he's he ends up in NCIS Los Angeles, you know, go back right, to Cali. I right. do think so. Yeah. Um, staying in Cali. That's right. Making yeah, that you don't, network drama money. You know what? If you stay in Cali, you don't have to go back to Cali. That's actually, that's Fair what enough. we've learned. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, he was definitely, yeah. What was the movie that he was in, in the eighties? I know Questlove has talked about his entrance in the movie Crush Groove. All right, Crush Groove. He was in, in Crush Groove. And I'm thinking of the, you know, it's funny, I didn't think of that first. Uh, I'm thinking of something else, something where he, it was really not very much more than a cameo, but he was just a cameo in Crush Groove as well. He did maybe 45 seconds. And it's one of the highlights of the movie. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a hell of a boost to his career. Very, very big. Yeah, I mean, and he's he's in a movie called Wildcats, which is uh, looks like it's a football comedy from 1986. Uh, way, way before right. Ice Cube had made the turn. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, he we we talk about his film career and and hosting career, but he's still putting out music throughout all of it and some of it and a lot of it very successful. Um, You know, you got Phenomenon in 97, Goat in 2010 and 2002, which has a top five hit. Love you better. It went to number four. Love is painful. It helps you grow. Well, it's time for the pain to go. You know, baby, smile today. Yeah. Which, you know, we think of LL as a part of an era, a long era, but, you know, he's kind of the this maybe second generation of hip hop and, you know, the, the, the era of hip hop that broke through and, mm-hmm. and, and, and got mainstream success. But, you know, he it, it kept it kept going and he was still putting out a record pretty much every two years or so you know his last one is from 2013 i mean control myself with j-lo was a number four hit in 2006 the career spans so long with relevance throughout it well, listen, I, you know, again, this probably isn't useful in the context of this particular conversation, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that he expanded this portfolio in a bunch of other ways. And so it's probably been, I don't know if it's been five years yet, but he's been running Rock the Bells. And Rock the Bells is this kind of vast trademark where he, he, does, he does radio and, I, and maybe it's television production and stuff now. And it's a whole variety of things. And, you know, it's very much to his credit. You know, he sets him, himself up as an entrepreneur and not just an artist anymore. Now, I, I don't know if that weighs anything with, with voters at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, no, seriously, you know, I, I salute him for, for his energy and his creativity, even if he's, you know, not always behind the mic these days. Yeah, it's, you know, it, there's, a, there's a diversity in the things that he does in entertainment. What's interesting is that he is being inducted into the Rock Hall under the title of musical excellence which is a side category that traditionally is for artists that you can't define with just their solo career for example leon russell someone who had a you know very successful solo career but also was part of the wrecking crew and also wrote a bunch of songs for other people and was a sideman. there was all this other stuff going on or like this year billy preston similar deal Mm-hmm. played with a lot of people, including the Beatles and the Stones, but also had a solo career and then also did this, did that. So how can you define them by one thing? And this, that's what this category we had been told was for. But now with LL Cool J's <laughs> inclusion in it, it kind of just seems like they are ready to establish it as a way to backdoor someone in that isn't getting the votes, but uh, crucially needs to be in regardless. Well, I think you're exactly right. And that's, I'm on the sidelines now, but that's the way it seems to me. And really it speaks to this larger problem, the thing I mentioned before, which is the uh, kind of gulf between the nominating committee and the, the voting members, because the voting committee is going to nominate him year after year. I mean, the mm-hmm. nominating committee is going to uh, nominate him year after year, and the voting membership is not going to vote him in. And so I really do think 
it was upsetting. <laughs> I yeah. shouldn't name any names, but there are there are, there are people in the hierarchy of the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who were very upset about this and about you know the fact that LL continued to be overlooked by the voting membership. And so it was that frustration that likely led to this recent move. You know, one way or another, we're going to get him into the Hall of Fame. And that's what happened yeah, this year. It's good. Absolutely. Well, and it couldn't have been any clearer uh, that, that this is what happened, you know, because they did put him on the ballot again this year. And then just rather yeah. than just saying he got in, I don't know. I'm like, do we know the numbers? We don't know the numbers. Just say he got in. I, don't, I guess there, I, there, there may be a, some integrity. Wow, well, they guess they the, did. <laughs> I'm out here telling the hall to commit voter fraud and that that's that's maybe a bad look for me but yeah I don't know we got you on record uh, yeah, saying yeah, that but. Exactly. well the hall a pillar of integrity well the other thing is you know we talk about it's in this side category it's in musical excellence that is something that maybe the people in this conversation know but mm-hmm. when they induct him at the end of the month it's going to be like a normal induction, they're probably not even going to say uh, in, in a side category. Or now here's the you know now here's the part of the ceremony for the side categories. They're just not going to do that. They are going to treat him like a normal induction, and history will remember him simply as a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. No other qualifications. I do guarantee with almost absolute certainty though that in his induction speech whoever inducts him will say something to the effect of if there's someone who just uh you know defines musical excellence defines musical excellence it's i mean they will say that like i don't know i i I think it will get i think there will be at least one nod to it that is my our that's our bet i guess that's our wager i my my sense is that they will do everything they can to just pretend like they're on the right side of history and he was uh and that the process works and that the system works and that he was just voted in that's my guess <laughs> well again you know i i will say that i think that you know this was you know more of uh, of an issue to the rock and roll hall of fame than it was to ll himself i don't think mm-hmm. he was losing any sleep over this you know he's a very focused guy He's, uh, uh, you know, kind of endlessly creative. He's always got work to do, and he's he's achieved an awful lot. So, oh, yeah. you know, did, 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 does his self-image depend on whether or not he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I don't think so. Yeah, you right. know, it might be another case of the Hall needs him more than mm-hmm. uh, he needs the Hall, which we've seen in the That's past right. work yeah. uh, against them. Very true. And I think about, you know. I think hello. you're right. He's got, he's got a Kennedy Center honor. Like, it feels like he leapfrogged it. Yeah, oh, damn. <laughs> Think Kennedy about it that Center. way, yeah. You know? That's right, that's right. So, and, you know, he he was the first hip-hop Kennedy Center honor. I mean, that's the that's the thing. I think this is great, and I, I obviously am excited for the induction, and I, I think he will be there. I mean, he, he sure. is a guy who knows the value of, uh, even if it's just for PR reasons, he knows the value yeah, yeah. of attending and, and participating. But I think, you know, you know what, at least in, in public over and over again, he's he's very gracious. Mm-hmm. He's really he's 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 a he's a charming individual in public, for sure. Not to say that he's not, you know, very, very likable face to face. But, 
you know, he's not beefing with anybody in public these days. Yeah, no, That's he knows. Happening. Yeah, he knows how to to keep his image clean, and he knows yeah. how to keep it in the public eye. Yeah. So I mean, so that All he that. is a non-controversial choice to host, say, the Grammys for like five yep. years in a row. That's right. He's someone we can all, even if it's just him as a persona, we can agree that this is, we're okay with this and we celebrate it. And he, yeah, he's a, he's a very likable, likable man. Yeah. He's got, he's done well for himself. And, you know, now he's finally got that final crowning achievement. (laughs) Well, I just think, you know, they had to know they look like suckers. The rock hall looks like fools. If they're putting in all of these artists who came after him and truly absolutely would not exist if there had been no LL Cool J. Like if LL mm-hmm. Cool J had not broken through, we would not have Jay-Z. And that's just the facts. So you look stupid when you haven't recognized the pillars upon which the foundation is resting. I think they knew it and they just were like, oh God, if he doesn't get the votes this year, we're just putting him in. And I look forward to the day they do it for Shaka Khan. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, gee. Yeah. Well, you've got my vote. I like it. Yeah. They didn't put in Rufus yet either. Mm -hmm. No, they go back and forth trying to, to figure out which iteration, which is why I think actually... She would make sense under musical excellence, given that she's both Rufus and she's Shaka Khan. The how do you define? How do you say one is better than the other? You can't exactly combine them, but you know if that's what this category is for, then okay, maybe. I do agree that I don't think anybody's going to know the difference. I mm-hmm. think we barely know the difference. Um. <laughs> yeah, we just devote you know talking ab- about it uh, every week for, for you know years, um, and and we're still kind of like. Well, whatever, but and you know. I, I, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a slight. Well, to there, him. I mean, let's face yeah. it, there is no, there, there's no Rufus without Shaka, so boom. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, right. agree, agree. I'm For like, sure. I don't think Rufus is getting in without Shaka. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's a good point. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, uh-huh. uh, no, no way. And I think Rufus should get in with Shaka. I think it should be Shaka Khan and Rufus. I do think that that would be good, although, you know, that's just more men in the hall and. I don't need it, uh, but <laughs> you know, I th- I think about you know this is LL Cool J's induction is coming like eleven years after he was eligible, a long time snub. One one of the guys we talk about when we talk about who are the big snubs, and he's fifty three, and yeah. you know what I mean. So like, yeah, damn, because okay. he started so young, yeah. he became eligible so young, and he could even be snubbed for a decade plus, and he's still the one of the younger inductees and he looks 30 like you know it's not like yeah right and he looks great yeah it's just it's funny when we've seen so many years of the rock hall where it's you know uh almost like a nursing home and you know he's a very very, wow uh, (laughs) i mean joe out here we've seen inductees who are in their 80s you know yes uh, no and we we're i mean we're very very for giving someone their flowers while they are still alive to smell them. And this is a great case of that. And I think it's just, he's very deserving. I think I, I don't, I didn't listen to the last episode we did about him, but I think I was probably much 
harder. And now I'm like, oh, wait a minute. LL Cool J is so foundational, so important. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad he's getting in. And I think it's good for what this means for the hall. I think that this is a wrong they needed to write. And they were just like, okay, fine. The voters won't do it. We've given you six opportunities. Uh, We're just going to do it ourselves and pretend that it's regular. Okay, bye. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So with this induction coming up, there is probably going to be a speech, an induction speech, and there's probably going to be, I mean, he is going to perform. I could see him performing with uh, other people because he seems like the type of guy who it would be like, hey, yeah, let's get up on stage and perform with me. And I think there's a lot of people who do it because he has a lot of friends. I have a list of about five people who I think could give a good speech, but I'm curious, Bill, when you think about who could give a good speech for LL Cool J and would be like a good kind of marquee name for the hall, does anyone come to mind? Madonna. Madonna. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> or not. You know, I'm just saying, you know, they're, they're contemporaries. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing she's in the hall. She um, is. You know, I've never, uh, you know, I mean, she's a pure diva, so God forbid she should ever say uh, anything nice about anybody else. But, you know, she was paying attention to rap and to hip hop in those early days. She was appearing on bills with a lot of those artists at the time. And, you know, maybe she could be moved to, you know, think about somebody other than herself for once. Oh, no. <laughs> also, you know, she, she, you know, she undoubtedly, you know, at least once upon a time thought he was attractive. So, right. That's Interesting. That's, that's, a, that's what left a... to mind. I'm, I'm sorry. I, li- I like it. It's very outside the box. But I, I like those those types of. I mean, choices. you know, seriously, you know, the, the the smarter thing would be to get somebody younger, somebody, you know, who's come after LL, who's been influenced by LL and, you know, can talk about his influence. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But my mind is, is going blank when it comes to that. Yeah, you so, you know, who should it be? right. So, you know, you think about the people who came after him, you know, it, certainly not a, a new artist. You know, he becomes eligible next year, but Eminem is someone mm-hmm. who has cited LL. Smart. As, oh, that's brilliant. M- Eminem would be great. And that would really tee Very up his, his induction mm-hmm. next year if he wants to show brilliant. that he, he, he can play you. the game. I, I think the choice, if they can't get anyone else, no doubt Questlove is going to be in the building. Yeah. Uh, and we know he can, give a, he can give a good speech. Do you um, think sure. uh, Russell Simmons as a possibility? I, th- I think there's one doesn't have the big marquee name, but then two, mm-hmm. there are some pretty serious allegations against him that I think the hall would probably distance themselves from. Oh, I don't know about these. And yeah. I would I'd, I'd look, that up, look that up uh, later on your own time. But yeah, uh, I would say he, he is a, a lightning rod of a figure for that reason right now. Um, but and when I think about, oh, you know, great. Yeah, I hate it. Yeah, Sorry. But when we talk about the contemporaries of LL DMC, Daryl McDaniels is, is someone who, you know, now I'm just thinking of like the people who he was a part of the Kennedy center honors performance. Uh, so queen Latifah gave a really good speech at the Kennedy center honors. She's another person that I think could do that again for the rock hall. And then we've seen Chuck D kind of go off on Twitter about how the Rock Hall has messed up not inducting LL and how important he is. And, you know, he really he really threw down, so to speak, about the importance of LL. And I could see that converting itself into a nice speech. Well, for that matter, you know, why not circle back to, to Ad Rock? Exactly. Yeah, that's you know? that's mm-hmm. another great one, especially given that that story yeah. you mentioned about 
him finding the tape among all the submissions uh, for Def Jam. He discovered LL. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, that's, that's such a great personal story that, uh, and connection uh, it would be. I feel like hopefully that will be in the package at the very least. Mm -hmm. And it would be a tit for tat because the beastie boys were inducted by uh, Chuck D and LL. So returning the favor, so to speak. Yeah. Bill, do you have any closing thoughts on LL Cool J or the induction of LL Cool J? I love LL, and I loved him and admired his talent when he was 16 years old, and now it's all this time later. And if anything, I admire him more now because, you know, he's, he's remained creative and he's expanded his portfolio, and he remains astonishing. And so, you know, that's, that's L, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that we're still friends. That's, that's a thing. And as for mm-hmm. the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that it continues to do what it does. And, you know, I think probably the Hall of Fame, will, you know, might outlast rock and roll itself. And, and, and that wouldn't be a terrible thing. You know, I think it's, it's a great institution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bill, is there anything out there that you would like to plug? We usually give our guests uh, a little time at the end to to make a, a plug of anything that either they're working on or something they want people to see. Here's what comes to mind, okay? And it, it, again, it's kind of a, a, a measure of, of how old I am, I suppose. Okay. I'm somebody who still collects, I, I, I still collect records and CDs. Uh, I'm not anti-digital music, but... You know, I go to flea markets, so I want to shout out flea markets as a source of wonder, as a source of new music. And, you know, I'll I'll put it to you like this, and this will give you an idea of what I'm listening to these days. I can't say I'm listening to a ton of new music, but I went to the flea market this last weekend, and I bought a a three-CD set of uh, music by Lee Scratch Perry Mm -hmm. and a two-CD set of... uh, uh, you know, a period in the music of uh, Albert Collins. And then also I bought one 10-inch LP of the Nat King Cole trio put out in 1950. You know, I spent a total of $7 on it, and I came home and I felt that I'm a rich man and I'm a lucky man. And so that's what leaps to mind. Okay, I love it. That, I that's love great. That. And our listeners know they can follow us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram. RockHallPod at gmail.com is the email address. If you send us a message and you want Kristen to see that, you need to designate that somewhere in your email. Otherwise, she doesn't want to read it, and I'm not going to forward it. Uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us. Five stars only. We got a great review recently that was five stars, and below it said solid four out of five, which is becoming our refrain. <laughs> Perfect. Which is, if even if you think we're four out of five, which is nice, please give us a five-star review. Anyway, thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. Thank you to Yusu Kim for the music. Thank you to the Merlis boys, Ben and Bob, for the connection with uh, the guest here. And thank you to Pantheon Podcast for hosting us. I'm Joe Quazala. I'm Kristen Stutter. And who cares about the rock toddler? That would be a worse pun. That would be worse. That would be a worse pun. So I just, you know, that's free for you if you want to change your mind and make the hashtag rock toddler. It's it's berculence. It's berculent. If if I do say so myself. Uh, <laughs> uh, the rock hall. <laughs> 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only. 
right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 